This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Brennan in Washington and this week on Face the Nation after 10 days of coronavirus quarantine President Trump prepares to get back on the campaign trail as the nation and the world see alarming increases in COVID cases. The White House is now one of the new red zones in America, a site responsible for at least 25 reported cases of COVID-19. After a week characterized by one conservative columnist as bizarre, berserk, and almost biblical, the president's struggle with the restraints of lockdown is now over as his doctor has declared him no longer a transmission risk. Pre-COVID testing, guys. Outside 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the D.C. Health Department set up a temporary testing facility and the reminders of the danger inside are loud and clear. We have a super spreader event in the White House. But inside the gate Saturday, it seemed to be business as usual, a campaign style event on the South Lawn. Get out and vote and I love you. The president's post coronavirus case message consistent with what he's been saying for months. A lot of flare ups, but uh, it's going to disappear. It is disappearing. But Mr. Trump's speedy recovery came after he received high-powered steroids and an untested drug cocktail from Regeneron. I think this was a blessing from God that I caught it. This was a blessing in disguise. I want everybody to be given the same treatment as your president. Is the president's enthusiasm warranted or even accurate? We have a cure, more than just a therapeutic, we have a cure. We'll talk with the head of the drug company that manufactures that so-called cure, Leonard Schleifer. Plus, we'll talk with former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, and check in with Minneapolis Federal Reserve President, Neil Kashkari. Just three weeks from election day, our CBS News Battleground tracker takes a look at the impact of the president's dismissive attitude about the virus in some key states. Democrats are predictably outraged. His reckless personal conduct since his diagnosis, the destabilizing effect it's having on our government is unconscionable. But what about independents and some Republicans? Our findings and a lot more are all just ahead on Face the Nation. 
Good morning, and welcome to Face the Nation. Although President Trump's doctor has declared him no longer at risk for transmitting the coronavirus, there are still many questions surrounding his health and whether the disease will have any lingering effects. The president has called his treatments a cure. But across the country, new cases are on the rise. 50,000 new infections have been reported every single day since Wednesday. We begin this morning with CBS News national correspondent Mark Strassman, who is outside of Atlanta. Out came the president, off came the mask. First of all, I'm feeling great. I don't know about you. How is everyone feeling? On the White House South Lawn stood several hundred conservative voters of color, mostly masked, but also shoulder to shoulder for the president's first in-person appearance since returning from the hospital. Across the country, lax attitudes towards the virus may partially explain why 13 states have positivity rates higher than 10 percent. New infections rose nationally for the fourth straight week. Ten states set records for single-day increases in cases. And new hospitalizations rose last week in 41 states. There have been some personal stories shared with us um, at meetings from some of our intensive care unit uh, nurses and physicians that are, that are heartbreaking. Um, and they, and they feel very overwhelmed. In the Northeast, many people also feel scared. A stealthy threat targeting them. A second wave of COVID with an asymptomatic spread. Boston ditched plans to reopen schools. But there is hope. A new report from the CDC found that COVID cases declined by 75% in Arizona after a mask mandate and other mitigation measures. It's a success New York City is hoping to replicate. Hundreds of city employees keep handing out masks. But there's resistance here, too, in a city averaging more than 500 new cases a day, the most since June. People are being a little hostile towards our canvassers just in light of everything that's happening. That includes early voting, long lines in Indiana and Ohio. More than 9 million people have voted early already in 30 states. This is way off the charts for what we have seen in previous elections. By the end of the week, more than 40 states will mail out absentee ballots. The Trump campaign is desperate to refocus voter attention on the election, not the infections. Donald Trump Jr. will speak tomorrow here at this gun club outside Atlanta. And as for his father, the president, he's heading to swing states Florida, Pennsylvania and Iowa for the sort of in-person rallies he relishes. Margaret. Mark, thank you. With just 23 days until Election Day, we polled likely voters in three states last week for our battleground tracker. In Michigan, former Vice President Joe Biden is up 52 to President Trump's 46 percent support. In Nevada, it's the same picture. Mr. Biden is at 52 percent and Mr. Trump is at 46 percent. In Iowa, a state that the president won easily back in 2016, this year, it's tied with 49% each. CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto is in Westchester County, New York, to give us the lay of the land. Uh, good morning, Anthony. So what does this mean for the overall race? Good morning, Margaret. So Joe Biden currently leads in our electoral college count 279 to 163. Somebody needs 270 to win. That's as of this moment. But let's look at this state by state, which is how the presidential election is decided. You mentioned those states in the upper Midwest, Michigan, where Biden is leading, Iowa, where it's even. And then I'll toss in Wisconsin, Biden leading, Pennsylvania as well. All places the president won in 2016, and he's even or trailing now. The reason that is important is broader picture, 
Let's look at the Sun Belt, where Florida is a toss-up. Georgia, North Carolina, again, places the president won last time. Well, even if those go into his column, he comes back, and I'll put them in red here. If the president wins those, we're still back in the upper Midwest, where the president would need to flip a couple of those states to put himself back over the top. Having said that, Margaret, he's done it before. Anthony, did the president's illness, his diagnosis with coronavirus, have an impact? Not for the voters that he needs to move. Now, Margaret, let me show you in our Michigan poll. On balance, both voters felt that the way the administration handled that COVID crisis was a bad example, set a bad example for the country by 60-40. And voters there are still concerned about getting coronavirus themselves, and they told us that they felt the way it was handled by the White House was more irresponsibly. You see these bigger numbers here, the majorities in all these states, Michigan, in Nevada, and in Iowa. The other part of this, Margaret, is that the administration's messaging on this was, of course, to try to inspire confidence that the virus could be beaten as the president recovered. Well, voters in these states told us that while they're still worried about getting it, they feel like, by very large numbers, you see over 70 percent in all three, that were they to get it, the treatments that they would, be, would receive would not be as good as what the president got, Margaret. Anthony, what about the economy? That's been the president's strongest message. Does it still work? It has. In state after state, he has had an edge over Joe Biden on handling the economy. But, Margaret, in Michigan, they are now even at 45 percent each who would do better on the economy. And something else is driving the vote here, and that is views of how the candidates handle themselves personally, on which Joe Biden has a large edge at 56 to 32 over the president right now, Margaret. Anthony Salvanto, thank you. We want to go now to the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel. She is recovering from a COVID-19 diagnosis 11 days ago and joins us from her home in Northville, Michigan. Good morning. How are you feeling? Uh, feeling a lot better. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. Do you know if you can still transmit the virus? Are you going to be out there soon on the on the campaign trail? Yeah, I'm being told, um, and I'm working with my doctor, so I'm going to follow the science, that 10 days after diagnosis, you're not shedding the virus any longer. But I'm just going to make extra sure before I get out there. But I'm feeling very well, and I've been fever-free for over 10 days. So that's a good sign. Well, uh, good luck to you with that. Um, On the president's uh, front, as we know, he is recovering. You just heard our latest read um, from CBS's Anthony Salvanto. Do you think these days off the campaign trail and now a canceled debate for this week have put the president behind? You know, uh, we've been looking at our numbers internally as well. We are not seeing that. Uh, We've seen the president actually increase in his numbers. I think voters are very frustrated by the corrupt debate commission that they would cancel a second debate. I think it feeds into the belief that this 47 years that Joe Biden has had is in, has had in D.C. is again protecting him from facing the voters, and uh, Americans are frustrated that this election commission 
interfered with our ability to see these two candidates debate. There are Republicans on that commission, and that decision was made in part due to health concerns because of lack of disclosure. Well, they're not nonpartisan know. Republicans. Those Republicans have been very critical of this president. It, they did not follow the science. It was done unilaterally without talking to the candidates. And they interfered in the election. It is corrupt. It is what D.C. is. They are in the pocket of Joe Biden, and they prevented the American public from seeing these candidates debate, and it's wrong for the country. So it sounds like you do think that could be a negative for the president. Uh, when you heard those stats on, on the economy in particular, that stood out to me because you always say this is the most resonant message for the president. But in Michigan, the state you know well, he's even with Biden on perception of who'd be better on the economy. Why isn't that working? I, I, I think the debate situation is a negative for Biden, I think it plays into this D.C. politician who's been there for 47 years who isn't getting tough questions from the media, who's refusing to answer about whether he's going to pack the Supreme Court, upending 150 years of, of our judicial standards. And he's saying, I'll tell you after the election, this is egregious that this candidate is getting away with this. What about and the this economy? this is what happens when you're wired in D.C.? The president, of course, is doing better on the economy. The PPP loans is what saved this economy. They did more loans in 14 months or 14 days than had been done in 14 months. He saved businesses. This president had our economy in the best shape before this pandemic. He's already leading us out of it. Well, it sounds like Republicans aren't going that. to pass the, the bill that the president now says he wants to No, to Nancy do. Pelosi wants to do a, a power grab and fund cities that were already in financial distress uh, in the name of the pandemic. And I think the American people well, don't Senate want Republicans to see that Republicans are objecting done. to the size of it, too. But I, I want to ask you about, are you going to start resuming in-person fundraisers? And when you do that, are you going to have masks be worn? Are you going to mandate social distancing? Yeah, you know, I, we're going to do everything we need to do. But let's go back to the issue, Margaret. You have a candidate you, you for will president be... right now. Well, but I, I want to ask if the president, president right is now doing, doing an absolute power grab. No, Joe Biden is running on the biggest power grab in history, and you guys want to talk about fundraising protocols? I want to ask what the he's president's doing in the next few stack, days because you are 23 days from an election. He's going to stack the Supreme Court, get rid of the filibuster, and he's being given a free pass. This should be all the media's focus on. I understand you don't like Donald Trump. I understand we don't Actually, like Republicans. He, you said the president... You have a Democrat running on the biggest power grab, the absolute biggest power grab in the history of our country and reshaping the United States of America okay. and not so, answering the question. Okay. That's all we should be talking about. Okay, so That's I, th all I we think, should be talking I about. think you answered the question of yes and zooming, uh, resuming in-person fundraisers no, with we, the president. Well, but let me ask you about cares? voting. Who cares if we have fundraisers? Because it's the president. I want to know what he's doing. But he's going to upend checks and balances in the third branch of government. Well, he's Why are we hold not talking about this nonstop? No, this is Joe Biden who's going to upend checks and balances, get rid of the checks and balances that are fundamental to our Constitution, and won't answer if he's going to stack the Supreme Court. Well, this let's, is all let's talk the about media courts. should be focusing on. Let, let's talk about courts. The RNC right now is involved in about 40 different uh, pieces of Correct. litigation regarding voting integrity. In federal court, Republicans are suing the outlaw things like drop boxes or alternative voting locations for ballot, ballots. Is the party strategy here to, as Democrats allege, basically try to limit the number of voters in order for Republicans to win? Well, let's go back to the courts. The Democrats well, this is are a federal suing, case. It, the Democrats are suing in every state to get rid of signature verification, to extend the length of the election, 
to get rid of all the witness requirements to ensure election integrity. We are saying you can't just change laws before the election. We, you need to have those safeguards in place. We but you're trying surety. to outlaw and drop boxes in Pennsylvania. No, we are not. We are saying you should know where the drop boxes are. There should be monitoring. We should have a standard. You shouldn't just be able to put them anywhere without notification. Those are the types of reasonable okay. things that we are asking for. Also, we have won on, ex on Democrats trying to expand ballot harvesting, getting rid of signature verification. Have, Everything they are doing, every single lawsuit so yesterday we are in, in, is Democrats trying to upend election It integrity. was a Trump-appointed judge in Pennsylvania who just yesterday rejected the RNC's effort to limit drop boxes uh, because they said and you didn't even make a case. They said it was, you lost this one yesterday. They said you didn't even make a speculative case uh, on fraud. So what are you but, suggesting happen to all of those ballots that have already been cast? What we're saying, you should know where the drop boxes are, Margaret. That's pretty reasonable. There should be some uh, notification. We also won in Pennsylvania as Democrats tried to expand ballot harvesting. We just won in Wisconsin. We just won in South Carolina. We just won in Iowa. The question we're is about cases drop boxes. across the country. Yeah, and we should be able to know where those drop boxes are, and they should be monitored. And I think that's a very reasonable expectation that states shouldn't be able to just put drop boxes in without any notification. But again, let's go back to the crux of the issue. You have a Democrat running for president who mm -hmm. wants to upend our ent entire fundamental system of government right. and get rid of checks and balances. Chairwoman, I appreciate you making the time. I, I wanted to talk about the mechanics of how people can actually vote and these uh, pieces of litigation. We, we're out of time. Thank you for joining us. I hope you feel better. Face the Nation will be right back with Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Last week, 13 members of two anti-government Michigan militia groups were arrested as part of an alleged plot to kidnap and then put Governor Gretchen Whitmer on trial for treason. She joins us now from Lansing, Michigan. Good morning to you, Governor. Uh, do you know if this security threat is over? Do you feel safe? Good morning. I have always felt safe. I am protected by the Michigan State Police, and they are an incredibly professional organization. Uh, but I do believe that there are still serious threats that groups like this group, these domestic terrorists, are finding comfort and support 
in the rhetoric coming out of Republican leadership from the White House to our state house. And so I remain concerned about safety and integrity uh, going up to this election. I want to get into integrity in a a moment, but just to to button this up. So three of the men that were arrested as co-conspirators and part of this plot were also involved back in the spring in April uh, with storming the Michigan Capitol with guns at the time. Governor, these are your constituents. How do you, in your state, unify things? I know you're talking about the president and rhetoric, but what do you do to deal with this? So, you know, the center of all the work that we've been doing around COVID is trying to save lives. Whether people support me politically or they supported my opponent in the last election, my job as governor is to make sure that Michigan is a place where we are saving lives, we're following the science, we get our economy back on track. We have saved thousands of lives, studies have shown by the actions that I took. We also have reengaged our economy. We're one of the 10 top economic uh, resurgences in the nation because of that work. But you know the Michigan Supreme Court has just tried to limit the powers that you use to do some of these things like mask mandates. So now in order to do further things, you have to work with Republicans. Clearly there are some deep, deep divisions in your state. Uh, Can you work with them, with the Republican-controlled legislature? Absolutely. You know, I was raised in a household with a Republican parent and a Democratic parent. Uh, But the fact of the matter is we have to find common ground. And I think that's what's so important in this election. You know, Joe Biden is the kind of guy who is deeply decent and has been known for collaborating and putting the interests of the public first. Um, Donald Trump has been incredibly divisive and downright dangerous, whether it's COVID or it is the rhetoric coming out of the White House. We have an important choice to make in the next few weeks. There are decent human beings on both sides of the aisle, but we need a leader who can bring them together. And that's why I'm excited about Joe Biden. You heard me ask uh, the chairwoman about whether it's a Republican strategy to try to limit access to the vote because of all the litigation. She said it's Democrats who have litigation uh, trying to essentially uh, skew the vote. Um, in your state, uh, there, which is going to be so key, uh, and votes are going to be closely watched, um, your secretary of state has said they will not be able to report the results of the election November 3rd. How long do you think it will take to know what the vote in Michigan was in a definitive way? I'll start with this. Jocelyn Benson, our secretary of state, is a national expert when it comes to election law. She has said we are going to get every vote counted and we're going to keep people safe as they go to vote. We're working closely with our attorney general, Dana Nessel, who has been a fierce advocate of protecting people's right to vote. And we're all working in a coordinated fashion. Michigan will be able to announce results, but we are not going to have artificial deadlines set by you know, people with political agendas, we're going to get this right. It will be soon after polls close. I'm not going to put a number on it, but we're going to get it right. And I want to remind Michiganders, you can vote today. You can go into your clerk's office and cast your vote today. So every day between now and November 3rd in Michigan is election day. And the more people that vote earlier, the more likely you'll be safe and get counted. Okay. Um, well, the, the law right now says if it's postmarked by November 3rd, as long as it arrives by November 17th, it'll count. And, and Republicans have objected to that length of time. But um, on the question of uh, poll monitoring, um, in our poll at CBS News, uh, in our battleground tracker, we found that half of the president's voters in Michigan think the president should encourage his supporters to go stand near polling places as places as watchers. Do you think this is going to be a problem in Michigan? 
here's what I can say. We are prepared. We are prepared to make sure that this election goes smoothly. We're going to keep people safe as they go to the polls. And we will not tolerate anyone who's trying to interfere with someone's ability to safely vote. We are still in the middle of a global pandemic, which is why we're really encouraging people to avail themselves of the ability to vote absentee and drop off their ballot. Are you encouraging, but given just what happened to you this week, Governor, I mean, are you worried about violence on Election Day or around it? I'm not worried, but we are preparing to make sure that we do everything to keep people safe. And I've got incredible confidence. I know that the people of Michigan want to vote. We see how high the stakes are in this election. We're going to have historic turnout, and we're going to do it right. You are a surrogate for Joe Biden. Um, Yesterday, at an event in Pennsylvania, he seemed to question the integrity of the vote. He said, the only way we lose this is by the chicanery going on relative to polling places. He later clarified he said he'd accept the election results. But is the Biden campaign accusing the Trump campaign and the RNC of of trying to intimidate voters? Is that what he's saying? Well, you know what? I think that a reasonable person could draw the conclusion that the efforts to undermine the Postal Service, to undermine mail-in balloting, the efforts to claim that if you don't have a result at the moment the polls close, that it's that it's not legitimate. All of those are efforts to undermine people's confidence in this election. I think that's what Joe Biden was trying to communicate. You know, sometimes um, it's we have to issue clarifications. But the fact of the matter is, every vote's going to get counted. We've never had an issue, a significant issue with fraud via mail-in balloting. And that's why the president himself avails him of it regularly. But to be clear, the integrity of the vote in Michigan is something that you stand by, and that is not something that Joe Biden is questioning. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Okay. Governor, thank you very much for your time. On Monday, CBS News will begin coverage of the confirmation hearings that will be held for Supreme Court nominee, justice, or judge, she hopes to be justice, Amy Coney Barrett. Our coverage starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. We'll be right back with the head of Regeneron. We'll talk about that drug cocktail that the president says cured him. And then we'll check in with former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, and the head of the Minneapolis Fed, Neil Kashkari. Stay with us. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to Face the Nation. The World Health Organization reported a record 350,000 new coronavirus cases on Friday. 
The Americas, Europe, and Southeast Asia are all seeing their highest numbers of cases yet since the pandemic began early this year. CBS News senior foreign correspondent Liz Palmer reports from London. Good morning. After a summer where infection rates across Europe were really pretty low, a lot of us hoped that the virus was under control. Well, we couldn't have been more wrong. This week, Europe had a third of all new cases worldwide. And control measures are ramping up again. In Madrid, there's a state of emergency. Thousands of extra police are on duty, controlling movement in and out of hotspot neighborhoods. France and French hospitals are worst hit, with over 26,000 new cases yesterday, more even than last spring. Berliners are facing a curfew for the first time in 70 years. Last orders, folks! And across England, pubs have to send drinkers home at 10 o'clock. In Scotland, most have to close altogether. In London, musicians staged a protest last week against the ban on concerts they say is killing their livelihoods. India, believe it or not, has had fewer new cases than Europe for the past few days. But because of overcrowding and poverty, it does have the highest daily death rate on Earth, just ahead of the U.S. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un staged a military extravaganza on Saturday to convince the world that his missiles are bigger than anyone else's and his COVID problem smaller. North Korea has not had a single COVID case, he said, and offered condolences to the rest of the world. And finally, in a country that really has pretty much stamped out COVID, New Zealand allowed its first international rugby match since the pandemic to go ahead in front of a crowd of 30,000 fans, none of them wearing masks. Here in Britain, the government's current strategy is a version of whack-a-mole, very strict local measures in hot spots in order to try and avoid another blanket lockdown, which would even further damage the economy. Margaret? That's Liz Palmer in London. Thank you. Soon after the president was diagnosed with COVID-19, he was given Regeneron's antibody cocktail. That's an experimental treatment that has been received by only 10 other people outside of ongoing clinical trials. We want to go now to the CEO of Regeneron, Dr. Leonard Schleifer, who joins us from Westchester, New York, this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Margaret. So President Trump was given this cocktail, and he has since said that it was both a cure and that he is now immune. Does your drug cure COVID, and does it make you immune? Right. So the president's case is a case of one, and that's what we call a case report. And it is evidence of what's happening, but it's kind of the weakest evidence that you can get, although there are some very interesting aspects of his case, such as he was elderly, he had some risk factors, and that he did not have his own immune system in gear uh, when he was sick and he got treated with our immune system in a vial, if you will. But the real evidence has to come about how good a drug is and what it'll do on average has to come from these larger clinical trials, these randomized clinical trials, which are the gold standard. And those are ongoing. We've got some preliminary evidence that we've talked with the FDA and we're going for an emergency Mm -hmm. use authorization because we think it's appropriate at this time. But yes, the president's case is a case report, 
perhaps the most analyzed case report ever, uh, yeah. but it's just low down on the evidence scale that we really need. But your drug, does it create immunity? Yes, it does. Um, when the virus comes in your system, your immune system is trying to create immunity. It's trying to create these things called antibodies, which are going to glom onto this virus and provide you immunity from getting sick with the disease. For how long? A vaccine. Well, it depends on how you acquire this immunity. If you get it in the form of vaccine, it's hoped that it might last for years. In some cases, vaccines can last for decades. If you get it in the form of natural immunity, that isn't known yet. Right. Could be months, could be years. If you get it in our vial, if you will, that's probably going to last you for months. A few months. Okay. The president has also said he wants to make your drug free to anyone who needs it. Have you talked to the president about this idea and how would it work? Yeah, well, we've talked to the administration a lot about this. And what they decided to do is take some risk. Back in the spring, before we actually had any data from randomized trials, they went ahead and said, listen, you start manufacturing the product. We will commit to buy it from you. Stop manufacturing the other products that you're working on or move them elsewhere. And let us make sure that if it does work, it'll be available. And what the that was a four hundred and fifty million dollar contract that the U.S. taxpayer paid for. So, correct. But how much supply? How much supply did taxpayers just buy? Because the president says he's making it free to everyone. Right. Well, they bought from us several hundred thousand, maybe around three hundred thousand uh, doses, which they're going to make it for free. But I think that the administration has been working recently. I saw an announcement with, with AstraZeneca. Look, we need, Regeneron can't do this alone. We need the entire industry. And I'm so proud. The industry has risen. We have companies like Lilly, great companies. We're partners with Roche, one of the best companies uh, in this whole uh, field. Um, Amgen's involved. AstraZeneca's mm -hmm. involved. Waxel's is involved. We all have to step up. Right. We're going to provide enough of this. Well, and exactly that point, providing enough is a key question. Um, there were nearly 60,000 people infected in this country on Friday alone, just on Friday. Uh, Regeneron, in that FDA emergency use authorization application that you said you made this past week, said there are doses ready for 50,000 patients. Right. That's not it's even enough. Not enough. It's not even enough for one day of infection. So uh, who decides who's going to get this supply of your drug? Right. So I think this is going to be worked out by the government by, uh, in consultation with the FDA, in consultation uh, with ethical experts, um, coming up with a distribution system where we take what's limited and we try and give it to the people who most need it, who would most benefit from it, the vulnerable people, elderly people, people who are high at risk, household contacts, perhaps. We have to figure out ways to ration this. And we have to get And the, the government would industry. do that, from your understanding? Decide who gets well, the I drug and who what, doesn't? Uh, I think in consultation with local health authorities, that's what they've been doing with remdesivir, Gilead's drug. Yeah. Uh, right. It's a complicated problem. It is. And, and there were shortages of that, which is why I ask you. Um, I, I want to ask you something specific to how your drug was developed. According to your company, the antibodies in it were developed using cells that were derived from fetal tissue, a cell line known as 293T. Those were harvested from the kidney tissue of an aborted fetus. There are also vaccine makers using this cell line. Um, but the Trump administration last year has suspended federal funding for research projects that involve fetal tissue from abortions. Should the president and the administration reconsider it 
given that this breakthrough was possible using those kind of cells? Yeah, well, let me be very clear. Our drug is not manufactured using uh, fetal cells. Uh, that's not in I the way we that. make the product. Developed, but uh, not... Just, so yep. let's not... We shouldn't exaggerate the situation. I'm not. Um, I'm the, reading what your company said, which was it was developed using it. Yeah, I, I wasn't suggesting you. I'm just saying we as a, as a society. Um, and it's not used to manufacture the product. Uh, it was. It's a standard cell line that was derived over 50 years ago. Um, and so it's used as a research tool. Um, where that research should be done, that's a good debate to have, but it's probably not the debate we need to have right now. Okay. Who should be getting this drug in terms of how you think it should be used? If, is it a prophylactic? Should it be given to diabetics, asthmatics, pregnant people? Right. Those are great questions, Margaret. It can be used, we think, as a prophylactic. We're doing a trial to see whether or not if you live in the household of somebody who's got it, whether it would stop you from getting it. Um, and that uh, would be very important evidence that we hope to get in the not-too-distant future. Then we might think about if somebody in a nursing home gets it, we maybe mm -hmm. we can treat the other people in the nursing home. If people who are very sick are exposed to people, people who don't have good immune systems. Yeah. These are all really important questions, which we're trying to our best uh, okay. while we're building this plane and flying it at the same time to be ready to answer some of those questions as well. Understood. Thank you, doctor, for your time. And we're back with former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who is in Westport, Connecticut. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, the president said yesterday the virus is disappearing. Uh, the numbers tell a different story. Friday, we saw the largest one-day increase in new cases in two months. How prepared are we as a country for what's about to happen? I think we're going to face a difficult fall and winter. What we thought might be just a bump after Labor Day clearly is a resurgence in the virus heading into the fall and the winter. You're seeing cases build across the entire country. There's now about 15 states with a positivity rate above 10 percent. About 40 states have a, a RT, a rate of uh, transfer above 1.0, which means they have an expanding epidemic. And most concerning is hospitalizations are building. People look at the number of cases and they tend to discount that. They say that because we're testing more, we're turning over more cases. But the hospitalizations are the clearest objective measure of rising infection around the country. And also remember, we test more not just because we test more. We test more because we have more virus. Some people get tested because they're just they're worried well. But most people get tested because they're either having symptoms or they're in touch with someone who is known to have COVID. So testing is going up because more infection spreading around the country. So we're in a difficult situation heading into the fall. I think the only, way, the only um, caveat is, in terms of us being better prepared for this wave, is that we have dramatically improved um, clinical care in hospitals. So I think we're going to have better outcomes overall, but we're still going to have a lot of death and disease between now and the end of the year. Well, I ask you that because you've been on this program warning since August that the Midwest is trending in the wrong direction, trending upwards. This, this week, this past week, the Wisconsin governor started setting up a field hospital because the ICU units in hospitals are getting overwhelmed. Why aren't those states better prepared? Well, in many respects, the states are better prepared in terms of the capacity in their healthcare system. I think the reality is that the preparation includes building field hospitals. You have to build surge capacity. The hospitals themselves just physically don't have the infrastructure to deal with the magnitude of the infection once this becomes 
um, epidemic within a local region. So this is part of the preparation. I think when you look at the hospitals and talk to hospital executives, and I've been talking to them, they feel a lot more confident about their preparations in terms of stockpiling ventilators, stockpiling protective equipment. But when this does roll through a region and becomes densely epidemic, it's going to look like this. They're going to have to build surge capacity, swing capacity. They're going to have to suspend elective surgeries. That's the system being prepared. Um, that's the reality of this virus. And the other thing is, it, you know, the parts of the Midwest and the northern states around the Great Lakes, which is where the infection is building right now, the parts of the country that are getting colder more quickly, um, we also see it starting to build in the southern states. And so for those who thought that this had swept through Florida and Texas and Arizona and other states and they had achieved some level of immunity and it wasn't going to come back again, you look at Texas right now and there, there are concerning signs that they're having a resurgence in infection that is quite dramatic. Uh, and something key to watch as we head towards uh, Election Day. Um, the president himself, you saw this letter released by his physician last night. Um, it didn't explicitly say that the president has tested negative. At this point in his recovery, what are you concerned about? Is he contagious? Probably not. Um, and he's not going to test negative for a period of time because we know that people continue to shed virus for a long period of time, but that's dead virus. It's virus that doesn't grow in a culture, can't really pass on the infection. There are indications that the president's no longer infectious. They released uh, data on what, what we call subgenomic RNA, which is an intermediate piece of viral um, genetic material that you really typically only see when the virus itself is replicating. So that's an indication that he no longer has replication-competent virus, meaning that it's not live virus. But he's going to continue to shed for a while. Now, based on classic criteria, He's about 10 days out from the onset of symptoms. He's been symptom-free, as best we know, for a number of days now. He's been mm -hmm. afebrile without a fever for more than one day. That should make him no longer contagious. The only confounding variable here is the drugs he received. The steroids could cause him to shed virus for a longer period of time. But I think, on the whole, it's probably a safe assumption that he's no longer contagious. I think the question now is, has his health been restored? Yeah. Um, and we know that a lot of patients have lingering effects from covid uh, you heard the Regeneron CEO talk about his drug, and he said um, he wasn't sure about supply, and Regeneron can't do it alone. Um, you've been saying on this program since July that there needs to be more manufacturing of therapeutics in case we find they work. Well, this one looks like it may work. Why don't we have more supply, given that taxpayers have already invested in this drug? We would have needed to take different steps in April and May to ramp up manufacturing capacity to have the drug available in larger quantities right now. It's too late for this year. I think we could still take steps to do it for 2021, but we're stuck with the doses we have. This has been a monumental achievement in terms of the time frame in which these companies pivoted to develop these antibody drugs. These drugs always look promising, and they were always believed to be a bridge to a vaccine. We're not going to have it in the quantities we need. I would estimate just based on current infection rates if you look at everyone who's above the age of 65, you probably need anywhere between 300 and 400,000 doses a month to supply it just for people who are indicated based on age alone. And there are a lot of other people who'd be indicated for this drug. We're going to have nowhere near those quantities. So we will have to ration this. And that's assuming the infection doesn't continue to expand, which I think it will. So we're not going to have as much drug as we should have. Remember, we could also have used these drugs as a prophylaxis, as Len mentioned, to prevent people from getting the infection. And in fact, the data has shown in the past that they're most effective in that setting. We're not going to have the supply to do that, unfortunately. So when the president promises to make this available for all, you're saying he had the chance, but the administration missed the window. 
Well, we definitely missed a window, and this was raised many times. Uh, I wrote about it. Others raised it to the administration, including myself, about trying to commandeer more manufacturing back in April and May, pay companies not to manufacture certain non-essential drugs. Most companies freeze about 12 to 24 months of their bulk stock of their biologics. So some companies could have suspended manufacturing of mm -hmm. non-essential biologics and turned over their manufacturing capacity to the production of these drugs and been paid for it. The money was there to do it, but it would have taken a lot of planning. That didn't really occur. Lilly and Regeneron did a lot to free up their own manufacturing, so they're yeah. producing a lot of drug, but not enough for the entire population. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, thank you for your analysis. Negotiations between the House, the Senate, and the White House over a new coronavirus relief package continue, but the prospects of getting an agreement, at least before Election Day, continue to look bleak. Neil Kashkari is the head of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis and joins us now. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, so there's just short about $2 trillion on the line here. Uh, this would have included aid to airlines, more jobless benefits, um, expansion of help to small businesses. Without that, what's the cost to the American economy? What's going to happen? Well, we're going to continue to see a grinding, very slow recovery with thousands of small businesses around the country going bankrupt. That's why it's so vital that our elected leaders come together to take more action. You know, the job market today, 11 million Americans are still out of work relative to the job market in February. That is as bad as the worst job market during the Great Recession and the Great Financial Crisis. And so a lot of people are suffering. A lot of small businesses are suffering. And just listening to Dr. Gottlieb, it seems like we're at about the halfway point of getting through this pandemic. So more assistance is definitely needed. But why isn't the urgency that you feel getting through to lawmakers? Well, obviously, I mean, I'll, I'll defer to the political experts on the political negotiations, and obviously we're close to an election. So I imagine that those things are uh, getting involved in the dynamic. But if you look at the data, the data is very clear. The recovery, the strong recovery that we saw in June and July has really flattened out. Uh, the virus is climbing now again around the country, especially here in my region, in Minnesota, the Dakotas, Wisconsin. And so you're seeing consumers pull back and not want to go out, not want to take that risk again. And so, unfortunately, we still have a long way to go in this pandemic, and that means we need continued assistance. So this morning from, from the White House, Larry Kudlow said again that what he's seeing is a V-shaped economic recovery coming right back. You're talking about flashing yellow lights. Why are you, what is it that you We're, see that worries you? Well, I'm seeing, uh, especially on the small business front, I mean, some sectors of the economy are doing fine. If you are a white-collar worker like I am, like you are, you're able to work from home, you're really not affected by this pandemic. But there are many sectors of the economy that are still being devastated. The travel and tourism industries, the frontline service industries, restaurants, and that's where you're seeing big job losses and bankruptcies. And this is going to continue to spiral and continue to, to bleed on. You know, if 11 million Americans can't pay their bills, can't put food on the table, can't make their credit card payments, their car payments, that then has spillover effects to other sectors of the economy. The reason the economy bounced back as strongly as it did in June and July is because Congress was so aggressive in the spring. We need Congress to continue to be aggressive so that the recovery can be stronger. You know, one, one number that is, is really stands out to me is this. 865,000 women have left the workforce since the pandemic began eight months ago. 
Compared to that, it's 216,000 men. Women are leading this recession. McKinsey says 2 million women are going to leave the workforce potentially because of child care issues. This is having a massive social impact. How long does that last? Well, you're exactly right, Margaret. If you look at the, the great financial crisis, it took 10 years, 10 years to rebuild the labor market, to bring back all of those workers who got dislocated, to re-engage them, get them employed again, and get the economy moving again. That's obviously terrible for them and their families, but it also holds back the economy's potential. And that's why more aggressive assistance now to keep people re-engaged, to keep them attached, so that our labor market can recover more quickly, it's, para it's of paramount importance, again, for those families directly affected, but actually for the economy as a whole and for all of us. Well, and any family is affected that has a child, clearly. Um, when you are talking about who is getting hit, it's women. It's also black and Hispanic workers who have suffered the greatest number of, of job losses. Um, is that inequality, some of it pre-existed this, this pandemic, is that something the Fed can fix? We cannot fix it alone. I mean, we can do our part by trying to make the labor market and the recovery as strong as we can using our broad-based tools like lowering interest rates and quantitative easing, but we don't have the ability to target the assistance to one group or one region or one sector. Only Congress can do that. And it's, it's much cheaper if you can keep people whole on the front end than if you, we have these continued layoffs and these continued bankruptcies and to try to rebuild it on the back end. That ends up taking a lot longer. That actually ends up being more expensive for the taxpayers. Well, Senate Republicans continue to argue, though, that, that, as you say, making the money available on the front end, though, could potentially be worse for them politically, that there would be a cost at the ballot box. Is there any economic cost, any economic merit to that? Well, right, right now, the U.S. government is able to borrow at very, very low rates. And so now is the time, uh, if there's a need to run deficits, now is the time to go ahead and use that government's fiscal capacity to provide the assistance. And so there's no question over the long run, we have to make changes. We have to make some decisions to yeah. get our fiscal house in order, to get some balance. But right now is the time to provide assistance. Neil Kashkari, thank you for your insights. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel. Michigan Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Regeneron CEO Dr. Leonard Schleifer, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, and Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? 
Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.